on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. The worst ones are kind of the inflammatory or inflaming the passions or prejudices of the, of the jury. One case that I defended very early on was a uh, drug and gun case, which is pretty standard fare for most offices, uh, Puerto Rico including. Defendant was stopped in a Nissan Armada, um, kind of in the trunk area was an AK-47, along with various types of narcotics. And during the closing, the prosecutor stated the defendant was in an armada that was armed for a war that goes on in public housing projects every day in Puerto Rico and proceeded to line up the 31 bullets that were seized and admitted into evidence and told the juror that uh, 31 lives were saved. There was no murder charge in the case. And you should do your job and find the defendants guilty. And all of that was improper. And, and the case was reversed uh, for a new trial. Um, the, the particular prosecutor was a very experienced guy, incredibly talented, ton of trial experience, but just kind of let their, his emotions get the better of him in that, in that rebuttal uh, period. That was Luke Cass, and this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to episode 27 of the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and today I'm chatting with former federal prosecutor Luke Cass. He spent a decade as a prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice, first as an assistant U.S. attorney working financial fraud and corruption cases for the District of Puerto Rico, then in Washington, D.C., as a senior trial attorney in the public integrity section of the DOJ's criminal division. Luke is now a partner at the DC law firm of Womble Bond Dickinson, where he defends clients in federal criminal investigations. He also serves as adjunct faculty at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches courses on white collar crime and securities fraud. I met Luke through the Journal of Appellate Practice and Process, which Nita shares in publishing duties with our good friends at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. Together, Arizona Law and Nita released the winter 2022 issue of the journal just last week. And Luke's article, Closed Courtrooms, Sixth Amendment and Public Trial Right Implications, is one of the featured contributions. While we worked on his article during the editorial process, Luke happened to mention closing argument, and I said, hey, how would you like to talk about that for an audience? So here we are. Now, I do want to open this episode with a caveat. Luke serves up so much substantive realness here that it may take two listens to catch it all. And with that said, here's our interview. Well, I'm not one to bury the lead, so I'm going to jump right in and ask you to finish this sentence, Luke. Closing argument is the time for... Closing argument is the first and only time for you to argue your case to the jury. Some folks like to sprinkle their openings with argument, but a proper opening should should not have any argument in it. There are subtleties in openings, but but by and large, they're limited to uh, a preview and a promise of what jurors will hear and see. So what are the best things or the advantages for counsel during closing argument? For both the defense and the government, uh, closing is an opportunity to, to show the jury that 
you've delivered on what you promised during your opening. It's a culmination and a synthesis of all the testimony, the exhibits, be those documents or recordings, the law, the trust you've earned with the jurors. And at the same time, there's uh, an element of performance to it, a uh, dramatic quality uh, to effective summation. Right. So on the flip side of that, what are the challenges or the difficulties of closing for counsel? Many challenges uh, for closings, but uh, just a few that come to mind. First is, is timing. Closings often occur after a long, hard-fought battle of, of trial and you're tired, but it's such a pivotal moment and you want it to be great. So while you have the advantages of recency, that it'll be the last thing that jurors hear, there's a pressure to perform in that high wire act environment uh, to make sure that it's effective. Second, it's an area that's a, a minefield of potential legal issues, particularly if you're a prosecutor, as I'll talk about a little bit later. So it's very easy to make a mistake and there are a lot of ways to go out of bounds. And lastly, third, um, especially for white collar cases, an effective uh, closing needs to be a process of distillation. And by what I mean about that is you take all the emails, the bank records, the tricky legal concepts, and simplify that into a, a simple persuasive narrative that jurors can understand easily. It sort of reminded me of, um, closings remind me of Mark Twain's quote, uh, about writing where he says, I apologize for it being such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Um, to make a closing great, you need to invest a lot of time mastering the facts, the law, your delivery, and the nonverbal communication that you want to make with the jury. That nonverbal communication is often as significant as the content of the argument itself. Making eye contact, pausing at certain points, getting a good cadence and confidence. Uh, are all very important. It, it's basically a process that starts well before trial begins. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Luke, because I wanted to ask you a little bit more about preparing for your closing. I know that as a federal prosecutor, it gave you a lot of experience in the courtroom and naturally pulling your case together in closing argument. So how much of your closing do you tend to have well-constructed before the trial starts? versus adding it as a result of what happened during the trial? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you begin thinking about it very early on, as early as when you decide how to charge the a case when you're a prosecutor, and it gets improved through time. But uh, you're absolutely thinking about it and, and having the, the skeleton of it uh, done, and you add to it uh, what comes up uh, during trial in, in terms of the evidence, and just to make sure you're arguing facts and evidence that are actually admitted in the record, not, not straying beyond that. Great. What are your thoughts on using visual aids during closing? Is that a good time for doing that? It depends on the case. In, in a straightforward case, it may be somewhat distractive to a, to a jury, but in a, in a complex white collar case, the use of, a, for example, a PowerPoint presentation can be very helpful, particularly if uh, the timing of certain events is critical because it'll allow the jury to see bank deposits being made in relation to a key phone call or a key email uh, visually, and they, you can recreate steps a defendant or a, a key person took on a certain day in a scheme or a conspiracy. But it's not limited to white-collar cases either. I had a Hobbs Act robbery case uh, where the FBI was able to show the actual physical locations of the defendants using their cell phones. Just a minute or two after the robbery, which can be compelling evidence when identification is at issue. 
So jury instructions are also a part of closing. How do they fit in? And I wonder, is do they kind of slow down your momentum because they're kind of boring? Yeah, sometimes they're boring. Yeah, especially the white collar white collar case. Um, they're vital though, um, Marcy. Some some judges do the jury instructions before closings occur. Uh, most of them do them after closings. But in either instance, whether you're the government or the defense, you'll use those instructions to to show the jury that the elements have been proven or why they haven't uh, based on the facts of the case. For the plaintiff who bears the burden of proof, they'll take each element one by one and apply it to proof that's been admitted at trial. So for example, you'll say something like the emails in exhibit 10 were sent from New York to California and they cross interstate lines, which is an element of wire fraud. Or as you heard from a representative of a particular bank, a financial institution was FDIC insured at the time of the uh, the facts at issue for a bank fraud uh, element. Uh, for the defense, the jury instructions are, are equally important. Most white-collar offenses require specific intent that the defendant committed an offense knowingly or willfully. Um, so effective closings from the defense side will laser focus on that mental state along with the definition of reasonable doubt uh, and that the burden of proof rests with the government. This played out recently in the Theranos case. Uh, where the CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, was on trial in the Northern District of California. And there were a number of different wire fraud counts that the jury had to decide on, um, namely whether Ms. Holmes participated in a scheme to defraud um, and the materiality of those statements, whatever they were, um, had to be significant enough that they influenced investors to invest in Theranos or use their lab services. And good faith is a defense to wire fraud, so the defense wanted a jury instruction that would, argue, that would allow it to argue that Ms. Holmes had no intent to cheat anyone out of money, rather she was acting in good faith. She didn't have that intent to defraud. Um, but whether you get the instruction or not, you can always argue it to the jury, but having the instruction is undoubtedly helpful because it gives uh, support to the argument and allows the jury to hear from the judge rather than just the, the counsel. You know, you mentioned a little bit about how closing differs for plaintiff versus defendant. Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure, sure, Marcy. The, the basic purpose is, is obviously the same uh, to persuade the jury to reach a verdict in favor of your client, but the approaches are, are very different. On the defense side, it's a little bit harder. You need to anticipate a lot more because you're going second. And I like to think of the distinctions between the two as constructive versus destructive approaches. So for the plaintiff who has the burden of proof they're showing the jury what they've built during the course of the trial. Uh, these are the elements of the offense. These are the facts that prove that. These are the reasonable inferences you can draw from the evidence and so on. So you're, it's almost like you're building a sandcastle. And the defense's approach is different in that they're arguing there is reasonable doubt because of the interpretation of certain evidence. Uh, defendant didn't have the requisite criminal intent to commit the offense. And these reasonable inferences in this particular case lead to reasonable doubt, um, essentially kicking that being that kid that kicks the sandcastle down. Oh, got it. That's a good way of describing it, really. Um, one difference is that plaintiff's counsel always has a chance for a rebuttal after the defendant presents its argument in chief. What should we know about how to seize that moment to greatest effect? Yeah, so rebuttal's the final word um, in the trial. So it's a tremendous opportunity to get that last argument in. Uh, a lot of the times it's it's a missed opportunity because, because some folks prepare it so far in advance because they want to end and go out with a with a bang. But 
seizing that moment fundamentally requires uh, just one thing that's often overlooked, and that's listening. You want the rebuttal to actually respond to the defendant's closing. Um, so many re rebuttal arguments will miss that fundamental part of just listening and actually responding to the points that the defense raised. Yeah, that can be kind of hard because um, listening requires you to be in the moment and taking your attention away from whatever you're, you know, focused on for your own part of it. Right. Yeah, and, and the trial's moving so fast, so it's it's difficult to just take a beat and and slow down to 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 take that point of of actually listening exactly what they're saying and and driving the points to that uh, home there. Yeah. It's frankly true for all of us in all of our relationships. That's right. So when we were discussing this topic of closing argument a few weeks ago to prepare for this episode, you had mentioned that you wanted to talk about reversals on closings because they happened quite a bit for you in the federal cases that you were involved in. Can you give us just a little bit of background about the cases you've worked in and the situations when that would happen before we dig into more of the details on reversals? Sure. So um, I started out my um, career uh, arguing criminal appeals, and, and there was a number of, of different um, cases in which improper closing arguments was, was raised. So I got very well versed in, in kind of uh, litigating these, these matters. Um, in assessing whether a prosecutor's closing uh, requires reversal, the courts look to a number of different factors. First is the severity of the misconduct. Uh, second is whether it was deliberate or inadvertent, uh, the context in which it occur occurred, uh, the likely effect of a curative instruction, and then the strength of the, of the government's evidence of guilt. I think it's just helpful to go through some of them because they're, they're very teachable moments so folks don't make the kind of the same mistakes. Uh, but basically, the, the court will go through that analysis, and, and after addressing the different factors, they'll see if it's so poisoned the well that the uh, outcome was likely affected. So what does a reversal actually look like, and how does it happen? So in terms of timing, if there's a contemporaneous objection, the judge will often issue the what's called a curative, a curative instruction, uh, which is basically telling the jury uh, that what the attorney said should be disregarded that nothing stated uh, by the attorneys during argument is evidence and that they should only deliberate on the on the evidence that's presented uh, during the course of the trial in accordance with the judge's instructions. And the closing keeps going on from, from there and the issue is preserved uh, for appeal. But when it's repeated, uh, when there's you know different inflammatory statements, and I'll go through a few different examples in a, in a minute here, um, it can lead to reversal. So what then are the consequences of a reversal? So a new trial is the most immediate consequence, but um, an improper closing uh, may also constitute what's called prosecutorial misconduct and require a referral to um, what's known in the halls of DOJ, um, three very feared letters, OPR, which is the Office of Professional Responsibility. And that's part of DOJ that's responsible for investigating DOJ attorneys who've been accused of misconduct or crimes in their professional functions. Uh, never never a good thing, Marcy, as I'm sure you can imagine. So how long does it usually take before you know that there's been a reversal? So if there's a contemporaneous objection and it's an isolated remark and, the, and, there's, and there's very good evidence, um, there, there really shouldn't be an issue. If it's repeated um, instances of, of improper closings, I think most experienced attorneys will know fairly fast that there there is a, a 
definitely an issue for for appeal. Starting off my career arguing criminal appeals, there were I handled several improper closing arguments, and and you can often tell at the oral argument stage based on the reaction of the judges asking the questions whether there's a, an issue that's going to be a result of reversal. Okay, got it. So what types of misconduct during closing argument typically result in a reversal? Can you talk about that? Sure, yeah, there's a lot of different areas uh, where you can cross the line. Um, I, I described it before as a minefield. I'll just give a few examples of them. Commenting on the defendant's uh, exercise of Fifth Amendment rights is a very common pitfall. That's where a prosecutor will say something like, well, you didn't hear from the defendant in this case. Uh, they didn't take the stand. Or they, they describe the evidence as uncontroverted or uncontradicted. All of that's improper because the defendant has a right to remain silent and no burden of, of proof. Um, attorneys also run into issues by expressing personal opinions during closings. They'll say, I believe this or, or that. Uh, that opinion carries the imprimatur of the government with it. And that can induce the jury to trust the government judgment rather than its own view of the evidence and is and is likewise improper um golden rule arguments of course the golden rules do unto others um uh, as you would have them do unto you those are improper as is um asking the jurors to put themselves in the shoes of the victim something like imagine how you would feel if x or y happened um those have been found to threaten the essence of a fair trial if you argue outside the record um or draw impermissible impermissible references. There's a few different cases out there about um, a first-person viewpoint from the victims uh, of a of a gruesome murder or death. Um, that's that's improper as well. Uh, personal attacks, whether they are on opposing counsel or the defendant, you see this on TV a lot, uh, Marcy, as I'm, as I'm sure you've seen many times, calling the defendant a monster or an animal or a rabid dog, all improper, inflammatory, um, or commenting on the witness's credibility, uh, that a particular witness was not believable or trustworthy, um, also improper. As are religious appeals, there was a one case uh, down in my district, actually, down in, in the District of Puerto Rico where I worked, where it was um, prosecutor described the defendant as sounding like Peter, who for the, th the third time denied Christ. The court said that was uh, religious references were improper. Um, sending a message or and reference to war on drugs or encouraging the jury to take a societal stand are all improper because you're asking them to decide things, uh, decide a, a verdict based on things unrelated to guilt or innocence. So those are improper. Even things as innocuous as saying, do your duty, find the defendants guilty are improper because the jury only has one duty, duty to impartiality. Um, but the worst ones are kind of the inflammatory or inflaming the passions or prejudices of the, of the jury. One case that I defended very early on was a uh, drug and gun case, which is pretty standard fare for most offices, uh, Puerto Rico including. Defendant was stopped in a Nissan Armada um, kind of in the trunk area was an AK-47, along with various types of narcotics. And during the closing, the prosecutor stated the defendant was in an armada that was armed for a war that goes on in public housing projects every day in Puerto Rico and proceeded to line up the 31 bullets that were seized and admitted into evidence and told the juror that uh, 31 lives were saved. There was no murder charged in the case. And you should do your job and find the defendants guilty. And 
all of that was improper and, and the case was reversed uh, for a new trial. Um, the, the particular prosecutor was a very experienced guy, incredibly talented, ton of trial experience, but just kind of let their, his emotions get the better of him in that, in that rebuttal uh, period. Yeah, I'll say. It's interest, interesting that um, what is considered misconduct is so well spelled out, and yet it happens anyway. Why do you think that happens? You know, it, it, sometimes it's carelessness, trial exhaustion. Um, I think more than anything else, it's the lack of preparation and a misunderstanding of the rules surrounding closing. Uh, what I always recommended to younger attorneys is to moot their closings first to a layperson, uh, somebody with absolutely no familiarity with the case would be preferred uh, and not a lawyer. My folks were in the restaurant business for a number of years. So I would, I would buy waiters coffee at the end of their shift and, and practice my closing on them. And if they understood it well, it didn't seem too confused. I knew I was off to a, a really good start, uh, but even mooted with other more experienced attorneys uh, as, it, as you're perfecting it so that they can kind of catch that improper or potentially inflammatory language um, throughout. Not to say you should be reading it, but um, but as you prepare it. Yeah, well, that's great advice. I especially like the idea of um, buying someone a cup of coffee and paying for their time. That's right, yeah. There's also a good book, uh, Professor Gershman, uh, called Prosecutorial Misconduct. He has, a, he has a chapter on summation misconduct that spells out all the different types of ways you can you can go sideways on this. Okay, great. Is it always really clear cut when somebody's gone out of bounds during closing and has jeopardized their case? No, the context really is very important. And also there's something called the invited response doctrine. So the defense can open the door uh, during their argument to arguments that would otherwise be improper. For example, if the defense calls a witness a perjurer, the, the government can usually respond to that and rebuttal oftentimes. Um, so it really sort of depends. And the example that I gave, there's just so many things in there that um, you can kind of tell reversal was coming. Yeah, um, that leads to the next question pretty naturally. Um, I was wondering if there are usually like tells in opposing counsel's conduct throughout the trial where um, the reversal on closing doesn't necessarily come as a surprise to you or conversely, do they actually come as a surprise? They sometimes do and they sometimes don't. If it's just an isolated remark, if you just said one of those things, for example, like the Armada comment, leaving it alone, uh, you know, standing alone, and there was a curative instruction, that would probably be okay because, um, you know, appellate courts will say that it's, they presume that juries follow the judge's instructions. But in a particularly circumstantial case, uh, and there's repeated uh, inflammatory arguments, you you know pretty well that a reversal's uh, probably coming. Uh, the strength of the evidence is one of those factors that I that I talked about. If there's overwhelming evidence, you'll have a little bit more room to to argue that it uh, reversal's not warranted. So I'm trying to imagine what it feels like as a trial attorney to get all the way to the end of your trial. It's an arduous journey, start to finish, and then opposing counsel has inadvertently thrown the case into reversal. What what's that feel like? Yeah, not good. I mean, the defense gets a wide berth when it when it comes to closings. Uh, I think the prosecutors have a lot less room uh, for error during during summations, um, but but never a good feeling because you know all that preparation, all that legwork that you and the agents did uh, needs to be redone. And not to mention if it's a if it's a terrible carjacking or or 
bank robbery victim, you know, they summon their courage and their will to testify at trial and only to learn that they may have to do that all over again. So that's probably the, that's probably the worst effect of it, of it all. Yeah, that's understandable. So what, I mean, you mentioned that it can be traumatic for the client or, or defendants, plaintiffs, um, because of, you know, the nature of the case, but what else is it like for those people to experience a reversal? So on the criminal side, if there's a if there's a conviction that came down, I'm not sure if the client would would uh, feel like it was a letdown for a reversal because it's a second bite of the apple um, for them. Um, but it's important, I think, to most most clients are not attorneys to orient them to what this process is actually like in reality. Um, as as all of us have, they've sat through a a law and order marathon or two, and um, they may not have a, a good appreciation for how these how these actually work and and what's allowed. Do you have any ways um, that you can help your clients cope with the letdown of a reversal? Well, just explaining to them that um, you know you're going to have a, a a second bite if if there are indeed charges. Sometimes there 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 are not um, charges brought again after after a reversal. They'll just uh, leave it at that. Okay. Well, fantastic um, talking to you about all of this stuff. I know that um, this is one of the most important parts of trial, and uh, I think you've shared a lot of great information for our listeners. So that leads us to sign-off questions. Um, my first one is, if you had to sum up your best trial advice into just a pithy little one-liner to share with people, what would it be? So it was something President... Um... I think Eisenhower said during the Second World War that would serve trial lawyers of of um, whether they're new or very experienced uh, well. And he said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. And that's just great advice. You need to prepare as much as you can, but it always changes when you're actually in trial. So one should never be wedded to a single plan. That planning, though, will make all the difference and allow you to address the challenges as they as they come up, as they inevitably will. Second sign-off question is the fun one. Is there a trial, whether modern or in times past, that you wish you could have been on? Yeah, it was before my time, Marcy, but um, I think it would, be, it would have been amazing to be part of the Nuremberg trials, which were, uh, as I'm sure listeners know, a series of 13 trials carried out between 1945 and 1949 against Nazi party officials and high-ranking military officers. For crimes against humanity, just being able to confront the greatest, one of the greatest wrongs in history, and working to right it, I think that would have been that would have been something to be a part of. Yeah, very consequential, and that's a great answer. Many thanks to Luke Cass for joining us on May the Record Reflect with his thoughts on the ins and outs and do's and don'ts of closing argument. I mentioned his article on the right to public trials in my intro. So please check the show notes for the link in case you'd like to read it. And I don't know if you noticed this, but between Luke Cass in February, the Mike Beckwith in January, federal prosecutors are two for two in 2022. Are the feds trending on May the Record Reflect? Or is it just a coincidence? The only way to know for sure is to tune in next month. So thank you for listening to today's episode on Closing Argument. Good luck in your depositions, your motions, and your trials in February. And I will look forward to settling the whole Fed's question for you in March. Have a great month, everyone. 
May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.